this is episode 76 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me. What does depression, strategy, financial intelligence, and specialization all have in common? They're all related to choices. In the case of depression, sometimes feeling like you don't have any. There are also topics Tara Gentile and I jam about on this episode of the Creative Giant Show. Listen in to see how good strategy helps you make better choices. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I am delighted to reintroduce you to Tara Gentile. She joined me on episode 27 of the Creative Giant Show, so that one's definitely worth a listen if you haven't heard it. So Tara is a business strategist and the author of Quiet Power Strategy. She works with entrepreneurs and idea people to help them leverage their quiet power and build businesses that generate wealth, peace, and ease. Her clients learn to lead themselves and their businesses based on what makes them most effective and compelling. Her work has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, Design Sponge, and the New York Times bestselling book, The $100 Startup by Chris Guillebeau. Tara is a regular instructor on Creative Live and speaks on entrepreneurship, money, and the new economy all over the world. This is going to be a fun conversation about every time that Tara and I get together and jam about strategy. It's fun. So let's jump right into this. Tara, I am so pumped to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. You know, there's so many things for us to talk about, your background and strategy, but let's bring everybody into this into the conversation here. So um, I've been a super fan of yours since at least 2010, right? And so I've been able to watch you grow from Tara Gentile to Tara Gentile, right? So, um, so I've been tracking, but maybe other people haven't. So how did you go from um, your prior career in much more of an academic track to being an entrepreneur? Yeah. So that's a crazy, kind of crazy story. Um, and I am super stoked to be here and talking to you, Charlie. Um, there's very few people I'd rather be talking to right now. <laughs> Tina Fey might be one, but we'll You know, Tina Fey, I would rather talk to Tina Fey than me. <laughs> yes. So, um, anyhow, yes. Yeah, so my previous career, if you can call it that, um, was in retail management and I got into a career in retail management, uh, because I was sort of a failed academic. Uh, so I studied religious studies in college. It's something that I'd been interested in since I was a little kid, to be honest, which is not normal. I know I'm weird, <laughs> but, um, it was something that's always fascinated me and not just even not, not like the pastoring part, not the ministerial part, although there were certainly times when that fascinated me as well, but really just, you know, the trying to figure out what people really believe, why they believe the things they believe, how their beliefs affect what they do, the decisions that they make, the way they, you know, interact with the rest of the world. Those questions did and still do absolutely fascinate me. And so, you know, in getting ready for college, uh, it was one of the things that I knew I really wanted to study. The other was music, which I don't normally talk about, but I was a trombone player. 
And uh, I was a double major in music for a long time too, but we'll talk about that another time. Mm-hmm. The religion was, was really my thing. And I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to just kind of do what, you know, my mentors were doing. Uh, and I wanted to be in school for the rest of my life because School is awesome. <laughs> yeah, this is this sounds like a familiar story. I've yeah, heard totally. this story before. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, um, so I applied to a, a number of different graduate schools at the end of undergrad, and I got accepted to my top school. I got a big fat letter in the mail that said, hey, you can come here for free, which was totally amazing. Um, And to boot, it was also um, the school that my advisor had graduated from. And so there was all of this just amazing emotional weight on this and just this sense of complete excitement. And I was so motivated to be doing it and really feel like I was on the right path. Um, And then I took the summer off and worked a little bit, played a little bit. And by the end of the summer, I was feeling really depressed and not just feeling depressed, but actually depressed. Depression has been something that's um, been a part of my life on and on. And since I was just a young teen and all of that depression, my anxiety, just a whole overwhelm of what life was going to be like as a graduate student. And then a graduated graduate student, which is not a you know, great place to be uh, often, um, was just coming down on me. And I made the decision to quit before I ever started. And so two weeks before I was supposed to go to grad school, I um, emailed my professor, I emailed the, the, in, you know, the admissions people at Syracuse. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I'm not coming. And uh, I took a full-time job at my summer job, which was at a Borders Books and Music. And that's my career (laughs) before this. Uh, And I worked my way up there uh, through store management uh, to the point where you know, I was one of a few people that were, that was running this $5 million store. And so I learned tons. I learned about marketing. I learned about sales, I learned about human resources. I learned about systems and organization. I learned about finances. Um, and I wouldn't say it was the best business education in the world, but man, it was trial by fire. And I did learn an awful lot about what it really takes to get people coming through the door, to make the sales, to hit your numbers, to keep people happy who work for you. Um, and so that was an amazing, amazing education. However, it was mm-hmm. also a depressing job. It was also overwhelming. It was also anxiety inducing. Uh, and so by the end of five years there, I was suffering from a horrible depression yet again. And uh, I also happened to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I also happened to be interviewing for the top position at my store, which was I was all but assured to get. Mm-hmm. And then I got a phone call one day after I had gone through the interview process and it was a coworker saying, Tara, I'm so sorry. It, uh, they gave it to somebody else. And, uh, that was the first day of my maternity leave. (laughs) So, um, I was like, I was furious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) First of all, I was so angry. Um, but you know, within about 24 hours, the anger had subsided. And I thought to myself, you know, Tara, if other women, if other people have figured out how to work for themselves, how to use their skills to their best advantage working from home, then certainly you can do this too. Mm -hmm. And that's how I discovered uh, the world of people freelancing and building businesses online. And uh, it took me about six months to gather up the information that I needed before I started my first website and uh, kind of put myself on the path that I'm on now. 
So I hope that helps. That does help. And in case anyone's listening and they're like, she sounds familiar. She does sound familiar <laughs> because we had her on episode 27 of the Creative Giant Show, right? Yeah. So, but that's been a long time ago. So, um, I, and I don't think you went into your depression nearly as much that time. Probably not. No, but I know it's something that people, you know, there's so many people that suffer from depression and there's so many people that, um, let it either let it hold them back or it holds them back or they're ashamed of it or they're afraid of it. And I have to say, starting my own business, doing my own thing, be, you know, taking agency over my life and my livelihood has been the best way to combat, um, what is, you know, this, fundamental thing that my body does. And the sort of, I don't know if it's the chemicals that get released in the process of running my own business. Um, but it's really kept me, it's kept me happy. It's kept me motivated. It's kept me, um, just kind of plowing ahead over the last seven years. And I really have not had an issue with it since I started my business. Why I love doing this show, right, is because neither one of us knew we were going to talk about creativity and depression and link between the two, right? Yeah. But I've also noticed that, so there's several dimensions of this idea, right? So there's one, the sort of, um, the co, um, what, the correlation between um, sort of women's emotion and depression. We know the statistics, you know, like if you, if you do a lot of studies, um, in our society right now, women are more biased to become depressed than men are, right? In a lot of different mm -hmm. ways. So we know that. But there's also this really interesting thing of the correlation between depression and create and one's um, identity as a creative person, right? And I think I have a lot of, you know, this is, so to stop, I, I should say, I'm not a therapist, right? <laughs> I'm, I am not, I do not have a PhD in, in, in psychology. So I don't, I'm speculating here, right? Um, yeah. Research behind it, but still speculation. So um, I think there is this very tight connection between creativity and depression because there is this one to be a truly creative person. You have to tap into an emotional well somewhere, right? There's some type of tension. There's some type of emotional well to pull from. And sometimes people say they're not creative and it might be that they don't necessarily, they're not paying attention to the different emotional threads in their life. Right. But what I've experienced with working with people and seeing people and seeing other creative entrepreneurs, especially is that people who are borderline depressive or who have fits and starts once they start getting in a creative zone, actually it does go away. Um, and I don't, I don't know why. I, I don't know all of the factors for that, but I just wanted to throw that out there for any listener that like, um, what I think is that we at our cores are creative individuals. We're creative entities. And when we don't find ways in our lives to express that creativity, it's much like not being able to find ways in our lives to express our sexuality. It's going to lead to um, depression. It's going to lead to dis ease. It's going to lead to dysfunction in different ways. And I think that's part of where this creativity thing that we're sensing in the, and I think a large part of the Western world is just people aren't expressing their creativity enough. Yeah. And it, I, for my part, I think it comes down to almost like denying an important piece of yourself. Right. And so, um, I certainly identify as creative and I certainly identify as creating things. And I also don't identify as someone who's like, 
highly creative or like flamboyantly creative, right? But I know that when I'm not uh, when I'm not expressing myself, when I'm not expressing my skills, when I'm not expressing my strengths or my talents, that I'm denying an important piece of, of who I am. And that is what inevitably leads me to feeling dysfunction, like you said, and, and just feeling awful. And it doesn't, in the moment, you can't make that connection, right? Because your brain is just not going there. It's going a million other places. Um, but looking back on it, that's always been what it was, um, you know, whether it was in high school, whether it was in college, or I think more profoundly when I, when I was working at Borders, um, I, there were times when that job was amazingly motivating and inspiring and awesome for me. And those were the times when we were given the most freedom to create what we wanted to create at a store level, when the managers were empowered with, um, you know, creative ideas and just saying, hey, you guys know your store. You guys know what works for you. Go do it. That, those were amazing times and we drove amazing results then. Uh, and then there were other times where it was like, it doesn't matter what you think. This is the way we're doing those things. And that's, that's when I got the most down. Um, and and not, just in a, not just feeling down, but seriously, literally feeling depressed, being depressed. Yeah. Hmm. So there's this... The other thing that, that came up to me as you were talking then and then time before is that there's also, um, I've, I've never been um, depressed in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Melancholy, which happens, right? That's, that's, just being, um, that's just being melancholy, but I haven't been depressed in the way that we're talking about here. I've lived with it, though. Angela has struggled with it as well. Um, and there's a sense of like what you do doesn't matter in a way. And um, see, the thing about entrepreneurship is nothing works unless you work, right? right. Um, and so you don't make decisions. It does, in fact, matter, right? Um, you don't make that sell that day. It does, in fact, matter. And so there's this, there's this tied thing with entrepreneurship between autonomy, right? Your ability to do different things, but also the necessity <laughs> that you do those certain things until you get to a certain degree in your business to where you've got processes that are sort of replicating themselves. You've got passive promotion things that will work without you. But um, I think you and I have both seen Tara that there are times in which people get those systems and then they unplug too quickly mm -hmm. and realize that they were still powering those systems in different ways. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. There's that definite hunger that you get as an entrepreneur that I guess can be helpful for, you know, depression. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about, you know, feeling like what you do matters and how in entrepreneurship, I think the, the distance between what you do and the result of it, like the, the feedback loop is so much smaller in entrepreneurship than in anything else that if you're feel if you're, even if you do just wake up with a bad feeling or that melancholy one day, the easiest way to get rid of that, if you choose to, is to make something happen in your business. It can be as simple as sending an email. It can be as simple as, you know, just, you know, hopping on a live video and just talking to people and getting that feedback. But, you know, yeah, at back and back and borders, the feedback loop was so long. Like you did something, you had to wait months to see the results of it often, not always, but often. And now, you know, I know what I'm doing every single day 
matters. Although, and I'd be, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. I think the longer you're in business, the further you have to plan out, the longer that feedback loop does get again. Yeah. So, I was so glad you went there. Cause I wasn't, <laughs> what I was about to say, we're already in sync. I love that. Um, yeah, because that's, that's one of the things that happen is as your business matures more, um, just from a planning level, you go from hustling day to day to hustling week to week to month, right? And then you might start being able to see a quarter, but there are certain times where, you know, you, you have the next entire year laid out in front of you, you know what you're working on at the quarter level, so on and so forth. But the thing about it is you have it all laid out, but you have zero feedback. And so all the work is up here, right? All the work is in quarter one of 2016. You won't know whether it actually pays off until quarter one of 2017, um, and there comes a trick where, um, yeah, I've definitely seen where people lose a lot of that creative spark and a lot of that motivation because, um, we have myopia about our future selves, right? And that, um, how, how are we going to slide way, slide, slide, slide ways into this one? So here's the thing. We tend to discount the amount of, um, pain or pleasure that some future self will have right. and really, overweight the amount of pain and pleasure that we have today, right? And so we see this in behavioral economics where if you ask people, well, um, would you rather have $100 today or would you rather have $110 a month from now? From a rational point of view, like it's a really good thing to have that $10 a month from now, right? Because when you think about your interest and the way we spend money, most people will choose to have the $100 today, right? We, we count our, our current pleasure and displeasure more than we do our future one. And that's the trouble that you get in with strategic planning and thinking in the future because there's some future version of Tara and Charlie. And they don't seem quite real, right, to us. But this version of Charlie and Tara that are talking right now, the one that's about to go to, you know, have a beer after this conversation and things like that, we know that person would count it. And so, yeah, there's this weird thing to where I think from an emotional point of view, it can be very challenging. I, I, think I've, I think I wrote that in the post about why strategic planning is so hard for creative people. I think, I think one of the aspects is it's hard because you have to give up something when you really go strategy, right? When you really yeah. do strategic planning, you have to give up something and we as creative people don't want to give up anything, right? We want to do it all and all of our ideas are going to come to fruition and that ain't so. <laughs> and the more honed your business gets, um, Terry, you'll know this too. The more honed your business gets, the more you end up having to say no to and really cool things that you have to say no to as well. Yes. <laughs> um, I struggle with that. I think year over year over year, the amount that the amount of new things that I have to say no to, to create what I really want in the future. Right? Like I realized this year I said, you know, and it's funny because, you know, like I said, it's year after year, right? Like I feel like I get this figured out. I get my boundaries figured out. I get my nose figured out. And then the next year I'm going after something bigger and I have to reset all of those boundaries again. I realized that I had been saying yes to things that were happening on the weekends, things that, you know, they were really cool opportunities, but they, I wasn't getting paid for them. I, there wasn't direct benefit to them. Uh, sure. Something great could have happened, but most likely not. And it just got to the point where I realized, wait a second, why are you doing this? This 
is not helping you achieve what you're working towards right now. It's only leading towards your burnout. Um, and so, you know, like I said, I just, I thought I had those things handled and I've had to re rewrite all of those, uh, I'll rewrite all of those boundaries yet again. And I'm sure I will have to next year as well, um, to, to make happen what I really want to have happen out into the future. And, you know, kind of to go back to that feedback loop idea too. I mean, I think for me, it's very tempting and probably one of the reasons that people become serial entrepreneurs, very tempting to go back to that beginning point when every little thing that you do has an immediate result. Um, And there's such freedom that comes from working really far out into the future and such confidence and such empowerment. And I also don't want to give that up. So um, it's a constant battle. I don't, you don't figure this stuff out. I don't think. (laughs) No, you know, I saw the same thing when I was in the army and as you progress through ranks, your ability to work with troops decreases more and more. You get ever smaller teams. So, you know, you come out, I'll just talk about the officer track. You come out as an officer and you're in the line with 45 other people. Right. And you get to interact with them. You get to be involved in them. You get to actually shoot stuff. Right. Um, You get to do all the fun work. And as you go up the echelons, like your teams become smaller, you start working with other lieutenants and your team is like five lieutenants. Right. Um, And that's who you get to talk to. And there's many people who get to that point in their career where they're like, you know what? I don't want to go any further because my joy was actually being in the weeds. Right. Um, and then you have to come to this realization about yourself as a career. It's like, I'm on the wrong career pathway because I'm going to get more and more out of the weeds the further I go along. And we see that in entrepreneurship as well. Like when we start talking about teams that are starting to grow, I've seen so many entrepreneurs that start working and they'll be say them in a VA and then they'll hire another sort of person. They'll hire another designer, let's say. And then they have these three or four people that they work with. Well, they're, comes this, the reality is, is um, about after five people, about managing five people, your ability to actually manage and, and do that effectively breaks down pretty quickly, even with technology. I know Slack is cool, but still, right? Even with technology, your ability to manage people breaks down. And entrepreneurs oftentimes won't step into the entrepreneurial sort of executive seat and hire in a, a coordinator or a manager because they still want to work with all those people. They still want to show up every morning and be like, hi, Terry, what are we doing today? And that type of thing. It's like, that's not your job anymore. But you want it to be your job. But to, for that to be your job, you can't also like do these other things. Like, you know, we're very schizophrenic in a lot of ways. Because on the one hand, we want to have more time in our schedule. We want to do our deep work. Like we want to work on those long range things. And yet, at the same time, we want these, we need and crave these positive feedback loops that happen every hour. We create something and somebody gives it a like. And they're mutually exclusive, right, in a lot of ways. And, you know, when I think of guys like Seth Godin, right, he's not on social media for a lot of different reasons. Um, He gets tons of emails from his blog posts, but think about how much different, and I think about this a lot. Um, I'll let you weigh in on it too, but think about how much different our view of our work would be if we absolutely had zero interest or awareness of the likes and the clicks and the retweets and everything like that wasn't even part of the way that we even saw the world. Like what would that free up for us to think about and do, right? So that's that weird sort of schizophrenia. Like we want on the one hand the freedom, but we crave that feedback. Yeah, I think I see that 
kind of disconnection with a lot of my clients where their goals and where, yeah, where their ultimate goals and they're sort of like what I really want right now doesn't match up at all or the way they see themselves and their goals doesn't match up at all. And it's a process of realizing um, that disconnect is there. But if you, and if you don't have, if you don't go through that process, if you don't have that realization, you will keep kind of it's almost spinning, you'll spin your wheels, right? Until you've just totally dug yourself in and can't get out. Um, and so, you know, for me, the thing I talk about with my clients most often is a freelancer mindset versus a business owner mindset, because they have business owner goals and a freelancer mindset. Mm-hmm. And so they think they can keep, you know, just taking projects as they come, or they think they can, they don't have to plan at all. They, uh, you know, they think that, there's lots of different things, but they then, like you said, they want all of these business owner things. They want more freedom. They want more flexibility. They want to make more money. It's like, well, you, you can't have both. You need to have a realization uh, that, you know, you got to change your mindset or you got to change your goals. It's, it's one or the other. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the question of choice too. And um, we had talked previously about, you know, should we have a conversation about what strategy is? And to me, strategy is all about making choices, right? Mm-hmm. It's how you're, how you're going to, uh, show up in the market. It's the choice of what you're going to create. It's the choice of how you're going to connect with people and realizing one, that it is a choice that you have all of these opportunities in front of you, but also realizing that you can only choose one, right? And that when you go and try and choose more than one thing, um, that's when you start spinning your wheels again. Well, and I would add on top of that, not choosing is a choice, right? A lot of people are like, I don't want to choose. Like, I don't want to make that. Well, okay. You've made a choice, right? To, and you know, there's an interesting sort of strategic tension between being a, being a specialist, right? Around what it is. You can say you're a specialist consultant. You work on search engine marketing. That's just what you do versus a generalist, or you have products that are specialist focused versus generalist focused, right? There's always going to be that tension, but Either one of those is a choice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. For instance, I tend to choose to be more of a generalist than a specialist, right? Um, And I can tell you, it's a pain in the butt, right? It is a pain in the butt because you don't end up becoming known for one thing, Mm -hmm. right? You get known for a way of being in the world, which is great until people might want to hire you, right? And it's like, I don't know about that whole way of being in the world thing, right? Um, Or, you know, um, I broadly do, you know, productivity and strategy and and things like that. Right. So people kind of know about those, but I would be way better if it were like, I help you manage your time. Right. I'm having time management problems. Charlie does time management stuff. I should go talk to Charlie. Right. Um, as opposed to that. So again, um, you could choose a specialist route though. The specialist route, the challenge with that is there's all this stuff that you might want to do that no one will hire you for because like that's not what your business is set up to do. If you just do search engine marketing or I'll go back to the self, I'll start throwing so many options up there. I just did time management. Somebody might come to me with a strategic problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, or they might have a strategic problem and not see the relationship between time management and that strategic problem. They're automatically going to exclude me and go talk to a strategist, a strategist, right? To help them, um, although what I'll say is if you have a time management problem, you have a strategy problem. So <laughs> yes. I'm just going to put that out there, um, and, and let it go. But yeah, I mean, you have to choose, right? And you're right. Strategy is about, um, well, it's decision-making the parameters by which we make decisions. And, you know, one way to think about it, and have you read the Lords of Strategy yet? 
No. So the Lords of Strategy has a compelling thesis that the reason why strategy is so um, incomprehensible for so many people and why it seems to be one of those lofty words is because the pioneers of strategy in the 20th century actually wanted it to be that way because they could charge more. Right. If it's, oh, really, if it's really this incomprehensible thing where you've got to hire these Boston, yeah, these BCG guys and these McKinsey guys to come in and, and help you with strategy, right. You get to charge a bigger price tag on that. Right. Um, but if it's just like these five simple things that you need to do to grow your business, it's like, uh, that doesn't seem that right. That's really, right. <laughs> really. That's it. But really, that's it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> really. It is. That's it. That's it. Um, but, um, the thing about strategy in a lot of ways is, um, yes, it's about the ways in which we make decisions, but one way to think about it is defining the game that you then want to win, right? right? And the big difference between tactics and strategy when you look at it is like if you're on a chessboard, like you might know each and every way to move every single piece, but you haven't really defined the board. You haven't really defined what type of game that you're playing. So you can move your knight one way, you can move your rook the other way, but they're not going together to, to achieve the results that you want to. And I think that's where, especially online entrepreneurs and, you know, uh, I'll shut up and let you riff about this. I promise. Um, I think that's where we get in trouble because we read all the growth hacking stuff. We read all the online stuff. We read all the list building stuff. We read all the sales stuff and we get this huge toolbox of tactics. But haven't figured out like, what am I trying to build? Like, Really, how does this hammer, like, I don't need a hammer. I need a drill because, like, that's what I'm building with the drill. That's my, that's my method, you know? Yeah, totally. I, so, the, the webinar that I just got off of before we hopped on um, was about stopping business burnout because the number, is it the number one or maybe it's the number two thing that we hear from people in surveys is that they have a problem keeping up with everything on their plate, like, Word for word, that's what they say to us, right? And I'm sure you run into the exact same mm -hmm. thing. It's like, well, that's because you're trying to keep up with things that don't matter to what you're building or what you think you're building. And so that's what I was talking about on that webinar. It's like, let's talk about the things that matter so that you can get rid of the vast majority of things on your to-do list and just focus on the, important, on the important stuff. And when you are concentrating on those five key areas and you have made choices about each one of those things, then you can much better direct your actions. And yes, I totally agree. Like we're, we are just bombarded by shiny objects and tactics and you know, how to do this, how to do that, how to do this other thing. And it's completely overwhelming to people and it's putting people out of business. I think we have more information, more ways of growing and marketing and selling and all the different things than anyone has ever had before. And because of it, it's putting people out of business because they're not focused on the basics of what they want to create, how they want to connect with people, who they want to create for all those key, key, key things. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Fields and I have been riffing about this. He wrote a post called the content delusion. Um, Ooh, I need to read that. Totally need to read that one. Um, and then I responded back with the content delusion is built on the scalability, on the scalability thesis. Right. Um, and his, his point was the content delusion is that you write a bunch of content or you create a bunch of content and it does the work for you and you don't have to do the hard stuff. Right. Especially yes. for, I, I, when I read it, I was like, you know, it's brilliant 
and it's coming from an, from an introvert's point of view, right? You don't have to get out and talk to people. You don't have to do the networky things. You don't have to host meetings. You like, you can write a great post and like business happens. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's a delusion. It, it doesn't work that way. No. Uh, no, I wish it did as much as it, the next introvert. I wish it did work that way. And it does not. Yeah. Um, you know, and sort of my point back was that I mean, his point in that post was like, it's like content plus hustle, hustle equals success. And hustle is that hard work. That's this, that stuff that you want to do. And I think one of the things we have to watch out for, and this is not just in um, online entrepreneurship. I think this is just the way the world is right now is we get sold so many things, so many like ways to make it easy and simple and fun. And the 13 steps that will ensure success. That's not the way it works, folks. Like you can have a brilliant strategy and it could be very simple and you will still have to work your ass off. Right. Um, that's the thing about strategy that I would want to say is it's not that you don't have to do hard work. You get to pick which hard work you're going to do. Right. <laughs> that's brilliantly said. <laughs> brilliantly said. Yes. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I could make a lot more money selling shiny objects and tactical solutions to things. And I choose not to because it's not helping. <laughs> um, and I, that's a choice that I've made. It's a choice that I've made. And, um, sometimes I still regret it. No. <laughs> I regret it every other day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, but it's so true. It's so important. And, you know, it, and what I, I think an important thing to say in this particular part of the conversation too, is that it's not that I don't think any of those tactics or shiny objects don't work. I believe wholeheartedly in the vast majority of those type of solutions that people are selling, but what they forget, I just did a webinar on this too, what they forget, what people forget when they buy those things or when they try to use them or emulate them is that there was a strategy that made that work. And so whenever I see, you know, a new method, a new tactic, a new formula, the question I ask is, what was the underlying strategy? Why did this work for this particular person, for this particular business? And it's why I have a huge Rolodex, Rolodex of tactics and formulas that I can you know, share with clients, but why I don't use all of them myself. It doesn't make any sense. There are very, 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 very few of them that fit with the strategy that I've chosen for my business. Absolutely. And, you know, that's... Hmm. sometimes when you hire a strategist and a coach, like you think sometimes you're hiring those tips and tactics, but you're actually not. Mm -hmm. You're hiring the, the, the kudoy, which is what it's called. It's a glance of the eye. It's French, right? You're eyeing the strategic insight to know when to use those tactics and why and like when not to, right? Yes. And that's the hard work. And I wish, you know, like, you know when we look... I imagine we both have this entire book of business strategies and frameworks and tools and things like that. And you just kind of flip through them. And so when we start sorting questions, it's like, like which one? Okay. That one, that one, that one, these three, right. Yep. And I could sell you the book, but still you'd have like all of these different frameworks and not know how to use them. And it's not because you're stupid. It's not, it's just experience, right? Experience, right. I was thinking about this earlier because someone asked me about plannings, like when do you know when something's a quarterly rock versus just a normal sort of monthly project? Well, one of those is experience. I know most people think, for instance, for a website, they're like, oh, I'm going to get the website done and it's going to be up in like four to six weeks. And I'm like, yeah, no, 
you, you want to think that, right? But no, right? Um, you're looking at a minimum of three months, probably closer to six. Just accept that and chew on it for a while before you make that choice. And they're like, nah, it's, it's, I'm like, okay, go do it. And then inevitably, two or three months later, it's like, yeah, this is taking longer than I thought, you know? Yeah. Um, and so experience, I think, ties in there. And I think that's what trips so many early stage entrepreneurs and creative people out as they don't have that experience and they so desperately want to find out all of the tips and tools to avoid the failure. Right. Um, but it's like expertise is learned through experience and experience is learned through failure. Yep. Right. And so you got to get out there and, and make it. And that's the beauty of those earlier stages of business because you know, you're not Tara Gentile up on the creative live studio stage and like trying to figure out what she's saying as she's saying it. That would be a terrible experience. Right. right. <laughs> terrible experience. You kind of want to know what you're saying before you're on the stage, yes. not as you're on the stage. Um, so it's harder to know how to say no to a new strategic option than what would make you say yes to it. Yes, I would agree with that. In general, what are some ways in which you help people sort of work through that type of scenario? I know that's a very broad question. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways that we do it is by getting really clear on what's worked for people in the past. Um, so for instance, uh, let's, let's take marketing because it's the thing that everyone always wants to talk about, right? <laughs> I get really sick of talking about marketing sometimes. Can we choose ops, please? Or like <laughs> money model or like finances? Okay, marketing. Marketing. Let's do it. So, um, <laughs> and I choose marketing too because there's some questions that I like to ask about it that I think are, I think they're really fun questions. So the, the kind of umbrella question is how do you like to connect or how do you want to connect with people, right? But then underneath of that, I like to get a little more granular and ask, um, how do you connect with new people easiest and then how have you been most persuasive in the past? And so I want to talk to people about how they've connected, how they connect with new people, because that's what marketing's all about, right? It's about getting out there, creating awareness about what you're doing, getting your product on people's radars, getting your, you know, the value that you're creating on people's radars. And so the things that allow you to connect really easily are probably really closely tied to whether an opportunity is going to be best for you or not. So you brought up creative live. And for me, that was, that was actually a really easy strategic. Yes. I connect really well with new people by speaking on stage in interviews, uh, on webinars, whatever it might be. And so that was an easy yes. And even when they said, Hey, we want you to talk about this thing that I didn't really want to talk about anymore. It was like, well, no, this is the right thing for me. And so I'm going to negotiate the hell out of this <laughs> so that it, so that it still makes sense for me because that was, that was a good yes. And that's been an amazing partnership. Um, and I'm trying to think of something that I have said no to marketing. Well, I say no to telesummits all the time, right? Because even though it's a speaking thing, like it has to do with me 
it, it has, there's marketing involved with that that does not tap into how I connect with people. Um, but I also don't go to like networking events because that's not how I connect with people either. I'm an introvert. If you put me in a room with a glass of wine and a name tag and a stack of business cards, I will go stand in a corner. Like there is no amount of, you know, positive self-talk that I can do that is going to make that worth my time. Uh, and then the persuasive piece, it, I think, taps into uh, or the persuasion question taps into, um, you know, kind of the modes in which you're most effective. Like, what what strategies do you use to get someone on your side? And I've heard all sorts of answers to that question. Um, you know, some people ask a lot of questions of the other person, and they try and understand their perspective so that then they can flip that around and show them how their option is the best option. Other people lay out all the details. Other people just make their strong, you know, people like me, make their strong opinions <laughs> known. Um, and we're very persuasive that way. And so again, you can kind of, once you know those things about yourself, you can look at an opportunity and now you have this framework that allows you to say no or yes very easily. Um, yeah, it still takes work. I'm not going to say that it, not, it's not easy, but it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to do it with no information. Absolutely. And what I love about that is that it starts, for instance, um, one of the key things about the guided business review um, that we put out earlier is it has such a focus on looking at what's worked in the past and what hasn't worked in the past and keeping that a part of your planning process. It's not just something that you reflect about or you have wine over and, and complain about. You actually use that information in your planning process because you only develop efficiency curves when you're looking at past data and saying what worked, what didn't, and you do more of what works and less of what didn't, right? And if you're never doing that backwards review, um, and some of it I have to say is that we, we become ostriches sometimes. When things didn't work well, we don't want to look at it. And part of that is like the whole, like, you know, Pollyanna, positive thinking culture. Like if it didn't work, don't pay attention to it. It's like, that's terrible advice. <laughs> it is terrible it, advice. It is terrible. Like if it didn't work, you don't have to beat yourself up about it. But it's just, hey, that didn't work. Let's try something else, right? Um, and incorporating that sort of stuff so that you get better and better every time. Because whether we're talking about product launches, you know, your first three to four launches, you're just going to be, they're going to be crazy. You're not going to know what you're doing. Like, even if you buy the perfect launch formula, there's just so many things that you're going to figure out on the fly. Um, so definitely start by what's worked for you. Um, and definitely wait more of what's worked for you versus more versus what's worked for Tara or what's worked for Charlie, because we have other geniuses. We have other talents, other experiences that make it work. And we may not tell you everything because we don't know what we're doing, because that's the thing as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you work from a largely intuitive space a lot of times. And so a lot of times you don't know what your strategy is until you hire enough people that want to know what it is and you have to figure it out. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a whole nother question for another conversation. Right. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate you starting with like what's worked for you in the past um, and then splitting it between new people versus, you know, persuasive. Yeah. So can we talk about this a little bit more? Because um, this, this idea of analyzing what you've done in the past, it's something that is part of our process as well, obviously. Um, and uh, our clients 
rarely, if ever, have done that kind of analysis before. They're the kind of people who would rather, who they probably never looked at a PL report for their business, um, despite being in business for years and years and years. Uh, and they've rarely looked at like even their month by month sales, right? And so often when we go through this process with them, there is a huge amount of shame that crops up. So I would love to know how you handle that with your clients. Oh, shame. Um, So first off, um, there's a reason why we don't have a whole lot of financial strategy conversations is because money throughout our society is so laced with guilt and shame and fear and vulnerability that no one wants to talk about it. Right. And so um, just going into that topic yourself, just know that you're going to have to put on your, your, you know, it's kind of like sticking your hand in a badger hole. Like you don't know what you're going to get once you stick it in there. Right. And that's just the nature of money. I think part of what it is, is um, looking at it from an approach that like, no matter what's happened in the past, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we cannot change what's happened in the past. We can use that as data and that we always, whenever we do P&L reviews, whenever we do business modeling, whenever we do any type of audit, we always find these places in which they are doing exceedingly well. But because they've been hiding from it, they don't know that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so my, my goal of looking into some of this stuff is not just to go find all the ways they're broken and go find all the dirty underwear and awkward spots. Right. But to realize like, where are the gyms in here that I know they're in there. I've done this enough. I know they're in there that we can then use that would make your life a lot easier. Like for instance, if we do a client audit and like most clients, like most times you do a client audit or you do a sales audit, what you'll find is some version of a Pareto principle. There are some clients that are just that they're 20% of your clients that are just 80% of the returns are coming from those clients. If you never look at that, you never know. And then you end up with these second, third order problems. Like I'm busy and I'm running around and my sales aren't high enough. Well, yeah, that, that happens because you haven't really taken that, ten, that chance to look at what works and do more of that and stop doing the things that don't work well. And I think the fear, Tara, is that, well, aside from the general shame that they haven't been looking and all that type of stuff, I think there's some fear that they're going to have to radically change who they are to be successful. Mm, Yeah. And that somehow in the books and somehow down in there, there's going to be some thing that, that confirms that head trash that's, that's in their head. And like, I am not, I'm not the right type of person to be in business. And if I look, it's going to corroborate that. Now, we don't consciously say that, but I have a feeling that that's largely what's going on. I completely, completely agree. Yes, I mean, that idea that there's some evidence in there that, well, and you know, we deal with imposter complex an awful lot, as I'm sure you do as well. And so it's like, well, when I look at the numbers, then that nagging little voice is, you know, somehow corroborated. And that, you know, now I know, I know that imposter complex is right. I am a fraud. I am terrible at this. I'm not ready for this. Um, Yeah. And when you keep ignoring it, you can kind of keep ignoring that voice. But we also know we're not really ignoring that voice. So what's the harm in looking at it? There's no harm. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's no harm. And the thing about it is, is like, okay, now you've got me going. Um, (laughs) Like, whose show is this? And I'm, oh, we're having fun. So, you know, the thing about it is, is not only is it, it rarely is going to corroborate that you're a bad person. You should go eat worms. You should not be in business. You should not be doing this creative thing. It's not going to do that. 
the other thing is it's going to tell you those places where you're smarter than you think you are, right? Um, because you can't stay in business unless you've got some grit and unless you've got some smarts and unless you're doing something that actually changes people's worlds, right? You got to have at least those three things. And if you've been in business seven years, you've been in business eight years and avoiding it, there's something in there. I guarantee there's some magic in there that we can tap into, that we can totally, totally tap into. And, um, you know, sometimes I get in trouble when I, when I make the difference between like men and women and sometimes our approaches. But I think in general, we have done such a terrible job as a society of, um, cultivating financial intelligence and literacy in women, right? Um, that it creates, especially for creative entrepreneurs who are women, it creates this sort of double imposter, like, oh, I never learned about that. That's not, it's just so much bullshit, right? It frustrates me. And I know I don't have, I know I'm on this side of the fence and not on the woman's side of the fence, but there's such a need for financial literacy, um, to be cultivated with women. Why do we sit down with, with men and boys and explain some of these types of things and we don't with women, right? Um, it's just fundamentally not there. So much, you know, to sort of loop back in, um, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about depression and the link between autonomy and just, you know, the, the results um, and effort sort of ratio that happens. I think a lot of the insecurity and fear that's happening with creative entrepreneurs is that they're not looking at the books and they don't feel empowered and everything is a friggin' crapshoot. And every day, like, I mean, there's been certain clients who, who, who would come to me so afraid of what the next month is going to look like because they never have done a financial assessment to see, oh, wait a second, for the last 12 months, I've made enough. And I already have enough in my pipeline to make enough for this next month. I don't have to freak out about that. <laughs> that of all the things that you can freak out about, that's not one of them, but you don't know that if you don't look at your money, right? You just, yeah. I know I'm on a riff here, but still it, it gets so, I think um, I won't go with super political here because that'll get me in all sorts of trouble. But I think there are so many choices that people make from a, from a place of fear and scarcity because for instance, in the United States, we don't have a, we don't have enough of a baseline for people to fall. That's, that's the political argument. But I think we constrain the beauty and growth of our businesses a lot of times because we're not paying attention to that unsexy sort of books and the plans and the strategies. Um, and we freak out and we go for the next list building thing and repeat the same problem over and over again. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, to your point about women too, you know, one of my good friends is Amanda Steinberg, who started dailyworth.com, which is financial education for women. And even now she's working on an investment platform specifically for women, which is incredible. Um, but seeing the inside of that business for, well, Daily Worth is the same age as my birth, as my business. Um, so I've seen the inside of it for over seven years now. And I know the surveys that they've run and I know the programs that they've run and that I, you know, I've been in focus groups that they've run and to even hear women who have very large financial nest eggs talk about, uh, you know, not really knowing what's in there. Uh, they know, they know that it's a lot, <laughs> but they don't really know what's there. Um, and then to try and apply that because they also have a very large base of people who are business owners or freelancers or entrepreneurs on one level or another. 
and to to see those women try and apply that same um you know yeah that same perspective on their finances when it comes to their business as they do in their personal life it's so sad and i've been there i've done that i've 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 been afraid of the numbers before and you know you know you said it's it's unsexy and i would say it's totally sexy <laughs> when you get into it when you understand it when you realize how empowering it is when you make a plan when you do cash flow analysis and you um and you see just how you know yeah you're going to be able to provide for yourself you're going to be able to pay the bills again and if and for some reason if there's not you've got three different ways to make the money so that you can but, Oh my God, that's sexy. That's so sexy. Yeah, the in state is sexy. The getting there, not, not so true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So thanks, thanks for that because you know that's. I think that's one of those things that we can. Um, I was going to say we can. I'm not going to put you on the hook, but it's it's been an increasing sort of thing that I've been thinking about. How do we um, take these these very fundamental, and I don't mean fundamental like stupid, but these are fundamental to business, right, questions, and put them out there, because there is a beauty to saying, you know what, like, based upon projections, we've grown 15% every, you know, every slice of time. Unless we do something completely different, we're going to grow 15%, right? Like, we should all be scared about the disruption that, that can happen in our business, right? So, you have to be a little bit of paranoid that something might change, but it's not that two o'clock in the morning, like, ah, what am I going to do three months from now? Probably the same thing you were doing three months ago. Right. Yeah. Go back to sleep. Right. Um, are there any other questions that you would like to talk about when it comes to strategy? I know we we're riffing nearly an hour. This happens about every time we get on a call, you know? Pretty much, pretty much. Well, I think, you know, I think that question of like predictability is a really interesting one because I think people um, really over or yeah, really overestimate how unpredictable their business is, right? Like I talk about, I'll talk about, you know, yeah, my business, I plan at least 12 months out. I know what I'm going to be doing 12 months from now. And the very first question I always get is, well, what about if everything changes? What about market changes? What about trends? What about the social media platforms change? Like, it doesn't matter. That doesn't actually affect my business very much at all. And what, what changes and, and, it, and you plan for the very reason that things change so that they still, even if that change happens, you can still completely predict what the result is going to be. And, and that kind of brings us full circle back to the empowerment uh, piece and, you know, just feeling that sense of agency. Like I, the market is not in control. The trends are not in control. I'm in control, right? Absolutely. There's this weird thing. Um, and when you do sort of, when you learn about economics, you have to deal with this tension that as individuals, we are completely unpredictable. As groups, we are completely predictable, Yeah. right? And that's just one of those weird sort of apparent paradoxes where like, I can't predict what Tara is going to do, but I can predict like at a larger, like give me a hundred Terras and I can predict what they're going to do. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what's unprecedented about business nowadays is um, the disruption cycle used to be a lot longer, right? Mm -hmm. You used to face a disruption about every 10 years, right? Right now you face both an internal and external disruption about every 18 months, right? So meaning um, a marketing system is going to change or tool is going to change an economic trend is going to, or excuse me, a sociological trend is going to change in that amount of time. I mean, 
I was, I was reading some post earlier about Charlie Sheen and that whole like winning thing that happened a few years ago that we couldn't get away from. Right. Well, um, things like that happen frequently enough and you can, you can um, know about them. And then the internal is you're going to hire someone, right? You're going to change your business model. Like your business is going to grow or it's going to, you know, go somewhere different. So, you know, on the one hand that you're going to face some type of disruption, probably two types of disruption in the next 18 months. On the other hand, you can pretty much plan out where your year is going to be a year from now. So, um, yeah, it's this very weird thing that the more that you plan and the more that you build your plan based upon evergreen things that don't, that won't change, the more that you are able to react to those random things that do change. I mean, we couldn't have foreseen blab two years ago. Wow. Is blab going to completely transform our businesses right now? It's going to give us a different way to connect with new people. So it's a new marketing tool. Okay. That's great. But besides that, um, we got to be careful about this whole game changer thing, right? This thing yeah. is a game changer. Mm, the games don't change that much. <laughs> no. Have you heard about that new one? That's like micro audio blogging Twitter for audio. And people are calling, this is the, this is the next game changer. I'm like, I don't think so. Who is, who is starting that? Like Instagram, maybe we could have predicted was an actual game changer, but no, I'm sorry. No, Blab is not a game changer. Periscope is not a game changer. Live video might be a game changer, but that's, that's different. Yeah. I think that's another conversation about game. Yeah, it is for sure. <laughs> we can keep going forever. We, we can, but people are listening. So, um, anything else you want to wrap up with for the day? I know I'm, I'm in front of you and um, a very good beer. So I don't ever want to be in that position. <laughs> and dinner. Dinner. Oh <laughs> man. Oh yeah. No, I think, I think I'm good. I'm, I love where this conversation went and I'm so glad that I got to have it with you, Charlie. Absolutely. Tara, thanks so much for joining me on this jam. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, Creative Giants. So we talked about a lot of things in today's episode. We talked a little bit about the um, relationship between creativity and depression, but we jammed a lot about strategy. And one of the things that I want to leave you with is what's currently on your plate that you either say no to today or that you need to start building a way to say no to in the future. Because if you keep doing the same things, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. Until next time, stay in tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.